Well, good morning. All right. Yeah, as you heard, my name is Robert Cunningham, and I serve as the RUF campus minister at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Uh, and it really is good to be with you this morning. In many ways, it, it is surreal uh, because I was baptized over 30 years ago at this church as an infant, and my standing here this morning really is a testimony, first to the amazing grace and faithfulness of God to actually bring to fruition the promises that washed over me when I was a baby. Uh, But even more, it's also a testimony to the faithfulness of this church. Uh, Many of you, whether you know it or not, uh, you taught me, you cared for me, you loved me, corrected me, uh, you, you took me in, you welcomed me, and more than you know, you taught me the gospel, you spoke it to me. And so in a very real way, uh, my hope this morning really is to just speak back to you the truth of the gospel that you so faithfully spoke to me when I was a child here. So thank you very much for having me. This morning we're going to look at one of the most famous stories ever told, uh, known as the parable of the prodigal son. You'll find it on page 874 in the Pew Bible, if you want to look there. And By way of orientation, I just want to remind us of the events that lead up to Jesus telling this story. You see, throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is this very polarizing and confusing figure. And there are really two groups in particular struggling to understand who he is and what he's doing. On the one hand, you have the tax collectors and sinners. It's a group that really means common people, uh, ritually unclean people, Gentiles, or people that are just not walking in the ways of God. And on the other hand, you have these people known as the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders and the religious people of the day. And one of the primary ways Jesus speaks to them uh, is through telling these incredible stories called parables. And they're often aimed at both groups. And the intention is to critique and correct some of their most fundamental assumptions. Assumptions about who they are, how they imagine themselves, and who God is how they imagine God, what they imagine his posture to be. And so uh, he usually concludes the story kind of with this implicit question of how are you going to respond to this? And so since Jesus was the wisest person to ever live, uh, you can imagine that his stories are loaded with meaning. They're kind of like diamonds that as you, tr- as you turn them around and look at them from different angles, you see different dimensions of the beauty of each story. Uh, and this morning, the particular angle that we're going to take is that of a younger son. In the story. So whether you're very familiar with this story or new to it, I hope you'll hear it afresh this morning, and I hope you'll see yourself in it. But even more, I hope you will be startled by the welcome of God towards sinners. So with that in mind, please give your attention to these words in Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable in verse 11. He said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He divided the property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and as alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word, and it's true, it's good, and it's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Great God, you are the source of life. You are the source of everything that is true and good and beautiful. You are the desire beneath every desire that we have. Lord, we pray with a text like this that is so familiar to many of us, we ask that you would make it strange to us in the sense that you would startle us with the beauty within it. Help us, we pray, through Christ. Amen. Uh, When I come back to visit Macon, I'm often flooded with childhood memories. And, for instance, I remember that during this phase when my sister and I, uh, I was five and she was about seven, we would go through these phases where we would boldly declare to our parents, we are running away. And our motives often varied in those moments. We didn't like the rules we were supposed to follow, or we didn't think our parents were being fair, or we were just being stubborn kids. But a few times we actually did run away. We would run out the front door, and we would head all the way over, one house over, and go to our neighbor's backyard, and we would hide underneath her back porch. And uh, what we did not know was that this amazing hiding spot was in plain view of most of the windows of our house. And you could see us just sitting there, thinking we were really doing something special. And of course, about 30 minutes later, you know, what felt like the whole day, we would wander back home, eventually kind of tired and just really wanting to go back inside somewhere that was warm. And the reason we would go back home is because we knew that even in our foolishness, that was the place where we belonged. Even in our foolishness, that was where we would be welcomed back. That was where we'd be fed. That's where we could sleep. That's where home was. We needed to go home. And those stories are funny to us now, um, but they actually shed light in many ways on what Jesus is teaching about who we are in the story we just read. You see, according to Jesus, one of the most common predicaments of humanity is this deep proclivity in all of us to reject and run away from God, really to run away from home. 
And we do it in so many different ways. You know, for some of us, it's very kind of public and social, the kind of obvious rebellion that everybody can see. But for many of us, we, we resist and, and distance ourselves from God in so many other ways. I mean, we can do it even through being really good, really good people. And we do it in such a way just to keep God out of certain parts of our lives so that he doesn't have to deal with us or mess with us in certain ways. We all have this proclivity. But the great problem is that the more we distance ourselves from God, the more we begin to lose our sense not only of where our true home is, which is with him, but we even begin to doubt whether he would actually want us there, whether he would actually have us return home if he actually knew all that was actually true of us. Would he really welcome us back? We start to fear rejection, and and that's really one of the reasons we hide so many of our problems, one of the reasons that we hide our most embarrassing habits, our most painful wounds, our deep struggles, is this fear of rejection. I mean, students that I minister to at UVA, it's so often the case that they say, you know, if people really knew my story or if they really knew the current state of my life, I don't think they'd really want me here. I don't think they'd really let me into their life. They wouldn't welcome me. It's no surprise that in this story, Jesus invites us into the vantage point of of someone who's deeply afraid of rejection, but even more, someone who actually rightfully deserves rejection. I mean, look at verse 12. We see the younger son makes what to first century ears would have been a scandalous demand. Father, give me my inheritance now. You see, in an agrarian society, that is as disrespectful as it gets. It's the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Because the younger son is essentially saying, I want your things, but I do not want you. And it gets worse. The the son not only forces his father to give him the inheritance, which is property, actual land, but he liquidates it, and he runs off and recklessly squanders every single penny until he finds himself with nothing left, a beggar working with pigs. From the vantage point of a first century Jew, you could get no lower than that. And as the story progresses, we see in verses 17 to 18, he comes to his senses and realizes his only hope is to return to his father, to return to the very one he's rejected, unsure of how he'll respond. And so he does what so many people do when they fear rejection. He crafts and memorizes the perfect statement that might achieve an acceptance, the perfect apology. And we do this in so many ways. It's the same logic that leads us to say, you know, once once I go a month or two without stumbling in this or that area of my life, then I'll, I'll tell someone about it. Or once I have this area of my life under control, then I'll let someone in and let them know that it's actually a, it's a point of struggle for me. You know, maybe if I present myself in just the right way, if I say it just right, they'll let me back in and they'll, they'll, they'll think I'm worthy of being received. Maybe they'll embrace me. You see, we don't have to work hard to see that this is our story. Beneath our own fear of being rejected is the reality that, like this younger son, we too run away from God, and we too share in this same kind of rejection of the very God who welcomes us. And Jesus is affirming that at one level, that is the story the Bible tells. The Bible tells us a story of this same kind of rejection of the very God who longs to welcome us. And whether we easily identify with this hedonistic recklessness of the younger son or the heartless, ritualistic conformity of the older son, we're invited to consider the many ways that we keep God at a distance, the ways we reject him. And in doing so, the ways that we look to 
other things that simply cannot give us the acceptance and welcome and embrace for which we long. And so we have to ask ourselves, where are you searching? Where are you looking for life and for an embrace and a welcome that can only be found in God? In his book on this actual parable, Henry Nouwen writes this. He says, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love and welcome where it cannot be found. We have all been there. And yet here's the thing, like most parables, Jesus is not just concerned with telling us something about who we are. Even more, he wants us to know something about God, who God is and what his posture is toward you. You see, though the Bible is a story of our scandalous rejection of the God who welcomes us, it is ultimately a story of the scandalous welcome by the very God who was rejected. The scandalous welcome of God toward the very people who rejected him. And here's what I mean. This theme runs throughout the Bible. I want you to see this. You see, the Bible claims that before all things were, God was there. And not only that he was there, but that he was three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. God has existed in this community of perfect embrace and perfect welcome. Like, that is the center of reality. Ongoing mutual welcome and embrace. And that is the embrace for which we were made. That's why we long for it. There was an overflow of the very love of God that he made all things, and he put human beings at the very center of the world that we might live with him and enjoy his welcome and embrace and extend it to one another. And yet the Bible tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected that welcome. And in doing so, they plunged themselves and us with them into this state of perpetual exile and wandering and searching for the welcome that we know we want and we cannot find it. That's why St. Augustine would often say that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. But the story does not end there because God is a community of love. He will not let that rejection have the last word. And so the Old Testament really is this story of God's ongoing commitment to pursue his people again and again and again and say, return home, come home to me that I might welcome you. And what you have in the New Testament is the very welcome of God taking on flesh in the person of Jesus with the same message, come home, repent, turn around, come back to me. And that's what's happening in this story, the startling welcome of God in the flesh of Jesus. And it's embodied in the parable he tells. And I just want to highlight two aspects of God's welcome that I want us to consider this morning. And the first is this, is that God's welcome is an eager welcome. An eager welcome. That is to say, even though we have resisted and rejected God, his desire has not abated. He is eager for our homecoming. We see it embodied in the Father in two ways. First, in his commitment. You see, in the two parables prior to this in Luke 15, God is portrayed as someone with this insane commitment to find those who are lost. He he leaves the 99 sheep to find the one sheep. He turns the house over to find one coin. And here we see his commitment expressed. Look at verse 20. We read, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. And you know what that implies. It implies that day after day after day, this father would continually go up to the terrace of the house and he would scan the horizon, yearning that he might see his son coming home. He's committed. He yearns for your return. But not only do we see his commitment, we also see that he waits with compassion. 
You see, again, the initial hearers of this story, they would expect their father to have already publicly disowned his son. If nothing else, they would expect him to be resentful and just ready to rebuke him as soon as he sees him again. But instead, upon seeing his son emerge in the distance, the father is filled with what? Not anger, but compassion. Compassion. Friends, God is well acquainted with all of the ways that we reject him and run from him. He knows them all. He sees you. And what you need to hear in this story is that no matter where you find yourself, God does not write you off. He does not write off your children. He does not write off your parents. He does not write off your friends or your co-workers or even your enemies. He stands eager with commitment and compassion to welcome them. That is who he is. But there's another aspect to his welcome that I want us to see. It is eager, but even more, it's extravagant. God extravagantly welcomes us into his home. That is to say, God does not only desire to forgive you. He doesn't only desire to heal you. All of it is toward the greater end that he desires to embrace you and welcome you home and dwell with you. You're made for life with him. That's why the Bible culminates in Revelation 21.3 with this declaration, at last the dwelling place of God is with man. That is the goal of the Christian life. That is the goal toward which we all move, to dwell with God. And we see the extravagant nature of the welcome really in two ways. We see it's extremely costly. You see, the son's rejection of the father has already cost the family socially and financially, but it's actually even more costly than that. You see, one theologian, Kenneth Bailey, in this book called The Cross and the Prodigal, he explains it uh, like this. He says, a first century man uh, would almost never run. You would never see your father run if you're a first century child. Because running involved hitching up your tunic and showing off your legs, and apparently that was very shameful in the first century. And yet here, this father does exactly that. And so as a reader, you should ask, why in the world would he do this? What is he doing? And Kenneth Bailey traces the answer to this important first century Jewish custom. You see, if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among the Gentiles, the way that this, this younger son has, and then returned home, the community was actually obligated to perform this ceremony to meet them at the gate and publicly reject him, to let them know that they're not welcome. And what's happening in this story is that the father knows that. And so he's going to do everything he can, whatever it costs, to get there first and say, no, 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 no. This is my son, and he is welcome. He belongs home. We're not going to reject him. He is willing to endure anything to make sure that happens. And friends, in a similar way, it mirrors the costly welcome of Christ toward each one of us. We're told that he endured great shame. He was covered in our shame. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was rejected that we might be welcomed in. That is what he's saying here. See, the welcome is extremely costly, but even more, it has this second feature. God's welcome is marked by excessive celebration. Excessive celebration. In verse 22, the son can hardly finish his confession before he is interrupted by the father's rejoicing. Get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes. My child is home. He is excessive in restoring his child's dignity, and there is no better outlet for his joy than a feast, 
a party of excessive celebration. Bring out the best of the best. And friends, that is the key feature of every single parable in Luke 15. The stray sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son all culminate in God's excessive celebration over every single person who comes home. It's no surprise that one of the final scenes in the Bible in the book of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This scene where God himself will celebrate with his people at a table full of the finest affair, because that is what he wants, a homecoming feast for his children. And friends, when we take the Lord's Supper in a little bit, this is a foretaste of the feast that you will have with your God, the feast for which you're made. See, God is eager and extravagant in his welcome. And in telling this story, Jesus really invites us to live in response to it. What does it mean for us to live as though this story is actually true. And I just want to highlight two things for us. The first is that we need to be a people who regularly experience God's welcome. See, as Jesus told this story, his invitation to both the unrighteous and to the self-righteous was to come home. Because we're all prone to run from God, we are invited now to begin cultivating this orientation of regularly returning to him. That's what repentance is. It's turning around, coming home, and in faith trusting that in Christ God actually welcomes sinners with forgiveness. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And so the diagnostic question for you this morning is, am I a repentant person? Am I a repentant person? If you're not sure, parents, ask your kids. Ask your coworkers, ask your friends. Kids, ask your parents, ask your teachers, ask your coaches, ask your friends. Are you someone who says, I know I'm wrong, will you forgive me? Are you someone who pursues reconciliation? You know, I've been a parent for only four and a half years, and I'm already convinced that being a Christian family is less about never messing up and more about admitting and owning when we do mess up. And one of my great prayers for our family is that it would be a normal experience for my kids to hear, Daddy was wrong, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Friends, we are to be a people who are free to say that because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. We've been welcomed in in such a way where we can be honest with other people. And it's regular acts of repentance in very ordinary relationships that actually help us experience the welcome of God. And you can only know the sweetness of his embrace until you've been honest about the sourness of your own heart. And it's why the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses says it quite well. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire lives of believers should be one of repentance. We need to experience the welcome of God. We also, though, need to be people that extend the welcome of God. You see, in many ways, this parable is really an indictment on the older brother because according to custom, he should have gone after his younger brother. He should have gone and found him and brought him home. And in a similar way, this story is an invitation to Christians and to the church to mirror the same posture of the Father, to offer a welcome that is both eager and extravagant, to begin to see our neighbors as those who are made for and who are in search of the very welcome of God. You see, at our church in Charlottesville, we've actually learned a lot about this from a very surprising place 
the Christian monastic tradition. That sounds probably pretty weird, and it may sound odd, but you see, from about the 4th century to the 15th century, in most parts of Europe and in North Africa, it was not uncommon to find yourself traveling on foot. And as you traveled across the countryside, one of the things that you always looked for toward the end of the day, you know what it was? It was a church. You would scan the horizons for the church because you knew that was the place where you would actually be welcomed in. That was the place where you would be fed. That was the place where you'd be cared for. That was the place where you would find a place to sleep and rest. That's what it was known for. In fact, there was somebody's, one person's job at the monastery or the church was to simply stand on the roof and scan the horizon to see if they saw anyone coming, especially toward the day's end. And when they saw someone, they would tell the entire community, a sojourner is approaching. Let's greet them with the very welcome of Christ. And they would walk in and they would prostrate themselves on the ground and say, Christ has come. And all they were doing in that moment is saying, you're an image bearer of our Lord and we want to serve you. Friends, that's a beautiful picture of what the mission of the church is in the world. And it's no surprise to any of us, I'm sure, that we live in a cultural moment where our neighbors are no longer looking for the church as that place where they'll be welcome, not many of them. But the question that we have to take seriously is, are we looking for them? Are we looking for our neighbors? And are we ready to extend to them the welcome for which they're made? You see, in many ways, uh, you've, you've probably seen a glimpse of the reality I just described, uh, depicted in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. You know, I'm sure many of you have, some of you may have read the book, it is huge. Many of you probably saw the movie that came out recently. The early scenes of that, of that movie focus on the main character, Jean Valjean. He's been in prison for stealing a loaf of bread for years. He finally gets released. And so he's wandering the countryside looking for a place that will take him in. And the problem that he has, though, is he cannot hide his guilt. Everywhere he goes, he has to carry this slip of paper that says, I'm an ex-convict. And so as you follow his journey, he goes to city after city, to taverns and to hotels, and all he finds there is rejection. And he gets to this scene where he's pretty much exasperated. And finally, some older woman says, have you tried that door up there? And it's the one door he's yet to try, and of course, it's a church. And so he goes and knocks, and he's greeted by a bishop. And he's brutally honest from the beginning. He's like, here's my paper. I'm an ex-convict. I will pay you anything if you take me in. And before he can even finish talking, the bishop has already turned around and told his household, prepare a table for this man. Get food on the tray. Get a plate for him. Get the fire going so we can get him warm. Prepare a bed for this man. And he brings him in, and Jean Valjean is totally startled. He sits at the table, and he just consumes the food because he's desperately hungry. He gets shown to a bed that's the most comfortable bed he slept in in decades. And he falls asleep. And as the story goes, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he thinks, this has got to be too good to be true. And so he decides to get up and make a run for it. And before he leaves, he steals some of the silver from the bishop's house and he runs. And of course, he's eventually caught by the authorities. He's dragged back to the, the bishop's home, and there's this loud knock on the door. The door swings open. They throw him on the ground. And they say, this man is a thief, and we've caught him, and he stole your things. And Jean Valjean's head hangs in shame. And the bishop interrupts and says, no, no, this man is not a thief. This is my friend. And he says, brother, you forgot the finest pieces, because I want you to have it all. And in that moment, everyone is speechless. 
The authorities don't know what to do, and Jean Valjean has tears in his eyes. And what's happening in that moment is you're seeing the welcome of God on display, depicted beautifully. And if you follow the rest of that book or movie, you'll see that Jean Valjean becomes someone who extends it to the margins of society, to a prostitute, to an orphan, even to his enemy, because he experienced it, and he never forgot it. It changed him. And friends, that is the welcome of God that Jesus is talking about in this text. You see, people marvel at that story because really they just want it to be true. And the claim of this parable is that it is true. Because in Jesus, God is the true elder brother who actually comes to the far country to find each and every one of us and to bring us home. Not once you clean yourself up, not once you have it together, but now. He wants you to come home now. And it is free for you because it costs him everything. Jesus paid it all. That is the story. That is our story. Friends, let us be people that regularly experience that kind of welcome from God and that learn how to extend it out into a world that longs to know it. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beauty of this story, because as we read it, we know something more about who you are and what your posture is toward us, even in our most foolish moments. God, we thank you that when you come and find us, you clothe us with the finest garment that you have, which is the righteousness of Christ, and you bring us home that we might feed on him and find life. Lord, thank you. Help us to live in this story. We pray through Christ. Amen.